The following sermon was preached on September 26, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. preached this sermon entitled New Covenant Worship on John 4, 21-24. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Well, you children and boys and girls, as you begin to grow up, you look at your life, you look at the various rules that your parents have for you, and, and perhaps you've recognized already that when you're very young and little, like uh, uh, Samuel or Hannah, there are a lot more rules. And as you get older, well, then there are less rules. Because the goal uh, in a Christian home is to train you, our children, to come to a point when you are older and teenagers that you're able to make decisions for yourself according to the Word of God. Now that illustrates how God has dealt with His family. The Apostle Paul teaches us that in the Old Covenant Church, the church was dealt with as minor children. And because of that, there were many more uh, rules and laws by which God governed the lives of his children. But as, as Christ has come and we've entered into uh, our full inheritance as the sons and daughters of God, well, so much of those external things have been uh, taken away and the Spirit leads us by the law of God. Now, this is particularly illustrated in the worship of the church. So in the Old Covenant, when we were little children, or the church was a little child, uh, there were many more rules and regulations for worship necessary to, to train and govern the hearts of people. Uh, but also, all of those things, you remember, were appointed uh, to be pictures of Christ. There, there was a pattern, a, a divine blueprint in heaven, and what was happening on earth in worship was reflective of that, that it might be a picture of the Savior who was to come. But because of that, there are those who uh, teach and suggest that uh, although the worship of the Old Testament had to be very carefully regulated, now you remember, uh, we, two weeks ago, we dealt with what we call the regulative principle of worship, that in our worship we are only to do those things that God has revealed to us by His Spirit through the Word that we are to do. But there are those that say that was true for Old Covenant worship because of its typical character and because of the, the minority, so to speak, the childhood of the church. But now as the church of the Holy Spirit, uh, we don't have to have our worship regulated in the same way. And in fact, uh, most of the dictates with respect to worship really have to do with our daily living as the sons and daughters of God. Well, I want to show you this morning that that is a, a grave error. That God has not changed His holy will in terms of how He is to be approached. He simply changed something of the manner and how He is to be approached. And we see this here in uh, John chapter 4, uh, particularly in verses 21 to 26. It's quite a, an interesting chapter. If you'll note that as Jesus' popularity is growing in Judea, he leaves to go north to Galilee. And there's a very interesting word here. 
It, it, for, for we read that um, in verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. Now, had is a word of necessity. And many of the Jews, by conviction, thought they could not travel through Samaria because Samaritans were a, a false religion. They were half-breeds. Some Israelites had intermarried with the other exiles that the Assyrians brought into the land and they sent corrupt priests there. They developed a corrupt religion. And the Jews, as she says, that Jesus had no dealings. And so they would actually go from Jerusalem over to Jericho, cross the Jordan River, go up the Trench Jordan, and come back in Galilee, which was part of the land of God's people. So many would say that he had to do that. But no, uh, it was not a moral imperative. Jesus went through Samaria. And the necessity was that he had this appointment at noon with this woman at the well in Sychar. Sychar is Shechem. This is the parcel of land that Jacob brought from the sons of Shechem. And Jacob there dug a well. And Jacob gave that well to the sons of Joseph as they come back into the land. So Jesus has an appointment there. You notice he's tired. And that's true, dear friends. This is just a reminder to us that our Savior had a, a true human nature. Uh, like yours, he could get tired. He was hungry. And he was thirsty. And so he's sitting there by the well. The, the disciples go into the city of Sychar to, to buy some lunch. But then the one that he was to meet comes out to the well. Probably because she was a woman of great shame. She came in the middle of the day. That was not really... Probably the time that one went to the well. Uh, but she was probably something of a, of a moral outcast in the city. So she comes there as the Savior waits her. And in this conversation, it's also very interesting. We learn a lot about evangelism. Notice how the Savior begins by asking her for a favor. And then as he seeks to uh, provoke in her an interest. As he begins to appeal to that basic restlessness that's manifested in her, her sexual life. And she finally seeks to bring her under conviction of sin. Now it's at that point that uh, we get the background for this conversation with respect to worship. Um, it's one of the great understatements of all literature. After Jesus reveals to her that he knows all about her five marriages and her adulterous now, uh, adulterous uh, uh, relationship outside of marriage. And it's, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Yes, he is, isn't he? He knew her like a book. Now, her next question, which is the background for this discourse, um, some think she was trying to change the subject. But I think not. I think he's already brought her into conviction of sin. So now here's the big issue. What does she do? Her religion would say you can stay right here in Sychar and offer sacrifices. But this teacher... Uh, this most remarkable one uh, uh, would say that, no, you must go to Jerusalem and make sacrifices if you are to have your sins atoned. And so I don't think she's changing the subject. I think this is her heart speaking uh, to him uh, when she asks this question where she ought to worship. Now, it is in response to that that Jesus teaches that because God is an infinite spirit, we must worship him through his son by the Spirit. Because God has an infinite Spirit, we must worship Him through the Son by the Spirit. 
So we're going to consider uh, three things here. We're going to look at the change uh, of uh, New Covenant worship, the character of New Covenant worship, and the necessity of New Covenant worship. Now, there are those that announce there's a change in New Covenant worship. And because of that, our worship can be uh, more free and less regulated because, after all, it is the worship of life. Now, it, in one sense, they are correct, aren't they? Is not Jesus here announcing a change in worship? Look at his words. Believe me, an hour is coming when neither, this is verse 21, neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, in the first place, he asserts that uh, she was involved in false worship. That up to this point, true worship took place only in Jerusalem. There is where God revealed himself through the temple, through the priest, through all of the ceremonies and the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant. And up to that point, if one really wanted to be right with God and a part of God's people, one needed to go to Jerusalem. But Jesus says a change is now on the horizon. An hour is coming. He takes it a step further. An hour is now at hand when true worshipers will no longer be tied to a place, but shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, we see at the end of, of this conversation with her, what is it that brought about this change? And that is the advent of uh, the Messiah. You see, the woman says, uh, then in response to him, I know that the Messiah, who's called the Christ, that's just the Greek for the Hebrew Messiah, the anointed one, that when he comes, he will declare all things to us. Now, gracious, remarkable words. This one who would never tell a Jew that he was the Messiah because they wouldn't understand. Here's a spiritual, hungry, Samaritan prostitute. And he says, I who speak to you am he. What a glorious and gracious proclamation. And here he claims now all authority for what he's going to say to her. And that he then, in his person, is the one who's introduced this change that from the point of his life forward, men will not need to worship in Samaria or in Jerusalem exclusively, but unto the ends of the earth. So there is a change coming, Jesus says. So what is the, uh, what is the, the nature of this change? Well, there are three things at least that involve in the words of Christ about this change. The first place, there is going to be a change in content. Because in the Messiah, the fullness of the Messiah, the Holy Spirit is poured out. And the church is coming now into its maturity. So yes, in Jerusalem, you had to worship. Because there was the temple and the priesthood, the Levites, the sacrifices, all of the paraphernalia of old covenant worship. And what Jesus is saying is, all of that is going to be fulfilled in him as the Messiah. And that... Everything about temple worship will be wrapped up in Jesus Christ, no longer to be practiced by the church. But in the worship of the old covenant people, there were those acts of worship that transcended the temple that were done in the homes and the synagogues. And namely the reading of scripture. 
in the synagogues, the teaching, preaching of scripture, uh, public prayer, uh, the sacraments, uh, and singing. And so, in the change that takes place, all the ceremonial things that pointed toward Christ would be fulfilled in Christ, not arbitrarily done away with, but he now is the reality of all those things. But that which transcended the priestly cult of Jerusalem temple would continue. So that's the change of content. So the very things that we looked at two weeks ago that we, we do in worship uh, are, are the things that continue. Now second, this implies a change in the priesthood. Because if in fact there is a fulfillment of all that is in the temple and the whole priestly system, then there's going to be a change of priest. And this clearly is announced, for example, in Psalm 110, that the Messiah himself, by God's oath, is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. In this way, the great prophecies of the Old Testament, that the Messiah be both priest and king, could be fulfilled. Because one from the tribe of Judah could not be a priest, not in the order of Aaron. But it's this unique priesthood by God's oath, by the power of indestructible life, that uh, the Messiah becomes this glorious priest after the order of Melchizedek. He then is the mediator. He is the, the bridge between God and men. He's the one that with our nature brings us to God and God is reconciled towards us and he lays down his anger toward us. This is the great priest. There are now no longer priests exercising any official capacity in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't refer to ministers or elders as priests. But also implied here is the reality of the glorious Reformation truth of the priesthood of believers. Because Christ is this great priest, and because the Spirit of Christ indwells us, everyone who is in Christ is a priest. Now, this explains why in the New Testament, a lot of the words of the sacrificial system uh, were used to apply to uh, the obedience in the life of Christians. Such as what Paul says in, in Romans chapter 12. I, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You see, he takes uh, the idea of the sacrifices and says this is, this is to be our lifestyle. Or, or why Paul himself refers to his ministry as, as the pouring out of a drink offering and, and, and of burnt offerings. And so, yes, the New Testament writers, by the Holy Spirit, do apply to us in our daily living uh, these words of old covenant worship. But notice, they're the words out of the temple. They're the words of the things that have done away with in their carnal form and, and, and describe our heartfelt obedience to Christ. But is there any conflict between the fact that these words apply to us in daily living and would still mean that as a corporate worship that has been required by God in the second commandment, in fact, all four of the first commandments, that's be done corporately according to his word. There's no clash here. I don't know if I've used the illustration here or not, and it's not original with me, but imagine that, boys and girls, you lived in the lands of a great king. And that king, some of you worked in his kitchen, some of you kept his gardens and his vineyards and baked his bread and made his wine. And some of you were soldiers in his army. And everything you did, you were serving the king. You, you were worshiping him as your lord and master. But the, this great king was so beautiful and glorious that uh, every week he would hold court 
and all of his subjects would come to the palace and they would serve him in a different way. They would come uh, dressed up for this festival. There'd be a special protocol that had to do with how they would approach the king in this manner. And that's the parallel. Yes, we are the subjects of a great king and everything that we do for him is to be service. But then on his holy day, appointed by his revelation, we get to come together with the other servants and with a different protocol, so to speak, to, to worship the king. And so the change of priest simply shows us that we can come now to him in this worship, as we'll see more in a moment, through our priest as priest. Well, there's a change of content. There's a change of priest. There's also a, a change of people and place. And so Jesus says uh, that an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And earlier he said, an hour is coming, when, in verse 21, neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So as I said, up to this point, this was the center of worship. This is why the Ethiopian eunuch would have been in Jerusalem, why the Queen of Sheba would come to uh, Jerusalem, why so many would come to Jerusalem um, to, uh, to come to God in the way that he, that he has appointed. But uh, what Jesus is saying here is that the place is no longer going to be significant. You, you get this. The place is no longer significant. There's not a particular city. There's not a particular building. There's not a holy place in all the earth that we go to meet God. No. We come into his holy presence as we saw in Psalm 100. Uh, wherever we are gathered for corporate worship. And this was prophesied in the Old Testament. So when Solomon in his prayer dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8.27. He said, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I've built. You see, he recognized, though God would symbolically dwell there, that the great omnipresent God who is in all places personally, again, we'll talk about this in Sunday school, is everywhere personally present wherever his people gather. And so our Savior tells us, so wherever two or three are in his name, there he is in the midst of them. It doesn't matter whether it is in a great cathedral, uh, in, under a a council tree in Karamoja, a simple church building in Greenville, South Carolina, a strip center. Um, wherever the church is gathered, Christ is there with them. And it's now people from all over the world, men, women, boys, and girls being gathered into the body of Christ as God prophesied through Malachi. From the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name. And a grain offering that's pure, for my name will be great among the nations. And it is, isn't it? Even as we gather here today, his name is great among the nations. And so indeed, a change occurred, a glorious change with the advent of the Messiah. A change of content, a change of priest, a change of people and place. But on the basis of that change, the second thing we want to see then, what is, the, what is the character then of new covenant worship? Well, Christ identifies it with two particular terms. 
he says in verse 23, an hour is coming when true worshipers uh, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Spirit here is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Truth in the first place is a reference to Christ who is in fact the revelation of the truth of God. So at first he says that we're going to worship God now in the new covenant in the spirit. Now the spirit was always involved in the Old Testament. But he was involved in a kind of an external way. He, he regenerated, he sanctified, he would anoint um, different leaders in the church and whatever. Uh, but uh, our worship is marked by the fact that on Pentecost the spirit of the risen Christ has been poured out on the church and indwells everyone who is regenerated and engrafted into the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to worship in the Spirit is to worship in the power of the Holy Spirit who now marks us out as a distinct people. And this worship in the Spirit is distinctly then Trinitarian. Trinitarian. Because of the Spirit being poured out, we now worship God as Father. Perhaps you notice the play on words. Uh, these Samaritans thought about God uh, or Jacob as their father. She says in verse 12, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Or later uh, she um, will say that our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And people, You people say that in Jerusalem. But notice in Jesus' response to her, his emphasis on worshipping God as father. This is a, a new thing. Verse 21, hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Verse 23, an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit or by the Spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Now, in the Old Covenant Church, they had a concept of God as Father. God has spoken through Moses to Pharaoh and said, let my son go. When Paul talks about the advantages that belong to uh, the, uh, the old covenant people, he said, to them belong the adoption. So they had some concept, but I'll put it this way. God was a father two rooms removed. You see, they were out in the courtyard of the temple. They weren't in the holy place. And they weren't in the holy of holies where his symbolic presence was. So he was a, a distant father, not in terms of his love and his favor, but in terms of that intimacy that belongs to us now. We come and worship God as our father. Distinctly so. Distinctly so because of our adoption. We are children of God. So in our, uh, our larger catechism, we ask, what does the preface of the Lord's Prayer teach us? Our Father, which art in heaven, teaches us when we pray to draw near to God with confidence of his fatherly goodness and our interest therein. With reverence and all of the childlike dispositions, heavenly affections, and due apprehension of his sovereign power, majesty, and gracious condescension, is also to pray with and for others. Oh, we come to him now as a father. As surely as you boys and girls will come to your daddy and, and cry out to him, you've, you've hurt your arm or, 
or you're hungry and you say, Daddy, help me or Daddy, feed me. It's that same boldness now that we have when we come to the triune God through the Father as our Father. Paul puts those two terms together both in Galatians 4 and Romans 8 that we come crying out, Abba, Father. Abba, the Aramaic for Father. The other word is the Greek word for Father. He simply, and our Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane in, in Gospel of Mark addresses God as Abba, Father. But it's simply an emphasis that we're coming to God now as Father. What a grand thing. To dwell long on. Some of us didn't have the best fathers in the world. Some of us can only learn from God what it's like to have a faithful father. But he is. Regardless of your background or anything else, what you can know is all you need to know about a father. What all of us who didn't have the best fathers need to learn about being a father is to go to our father and to speak to him as sons and daughters, because we have been adopted into his family. This is the privilege of prayer. This is the privilege of corporate worship. We come to God as Father. So I say this is theocentric. We come to God as Father. But that implies then that our worship must also be Christocentric, because how is it that we can come to God as Father? It's only through the completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the basis of what the Savior has done... God not only has justified us, which means he has pardoned all of our sins and constituted us legally righteous, but he's also adopted us into his family, given us into the number of and all the privileges of the sons of God. And we mention Christ as the mediator. It's because he has accomplished this work that we come now to God as Father. Again, our larger catechism uh, speaks to us uh, in two sections about this. What is it to pray in the name of Christ? 180, to pray in the name of Christ is in obedience to the command and in confidence on his promises to ask mercy for his sake. Not by bare mentioning of his name, but by drawing our encouragement to pray, our boldest strength and hope of acceptance in our prayer from Christ and his mediation. Why are we to pray in the name of Christ? The sinfulness of man and his distance from God by reason thereof being so great as that we can have no access into his presence without a mediator. And there being none in heaven or earth appointed to or fit for that glorious work, but Christ alone, we're to pray in no other name but his alone. I ask you, dear friends, this morning, do you know God as Father? In all of his beauty and loveliness, this great and awful, holy, triune God. Do you know him as Father? There's nothing more precious. But understand, if you don't know him as Father, then you'll only know him as Judge. He's only one or the other in the lives of every single one of us. He's out of the Father who is reconciled to us for Christ's sake. Or he's the Judge who will come at the end of the age and destroy us and cast us into hell forever. And so I lift up Christ, the Mediator, we come to God and worship through him. We pray in his name. We worship in his name. But you can only do that if you're resting in Christ this morning. Boys and girls, be sure that you are trusting Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Every adult who hears my voice or who will hear it in the recording of the sermon, you be sure that you're resting in Christ 
For in him alone can you know God as Father. So, because we worship in the Spirit, our worship is theocentric, it's Christocentric. And to coin another word, it's also pneumocentric. We're coming to God through the Son by the Holy Spirit. And so our worship then is created in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. He is at work in us, regenerating us, uniting us to Christ, so that we then can come to God as Father. And there are at least three implications of this worshiping uh, uh, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, in the first place, our worship must be free and affectionate. You know, we often, as I mentioned before, quote a quotation from Isaiah about worshiping God according to the traditions of men. But you know that same quotation in Mark 7, 6, uh, the Savior says, rightly to Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it's written, this people honors me with their lips. But their heart is far away from me. Oh, I grieve in my own heart. I know the wickedness. I know how often my heart is far from God. The worship of the Spirit means that our affections have been stirred up by the Holy Spirit. They run out to God. And how we need this. And how God delights in it. And all of the worship is merely formalistic. It's dead worship. May God give us grace to worship by the Spirit. Second, uh, spiritual worship is simple worship. We've already mentioned the change that's taken place. So all the ornate things and, and uh, complicated rituals and the daily shedding of all kinds of blood and washings with water and uh, all of those things, uh, they've been done away with. And our worship remains very simple. Those simple elements that I talked about. And the only externals that we have are the two sacraments that he gave to us that themselves are very simple. They can be done anywhere. And we should revel in the simplicity of worship because, again, people are trying to ornament God's worship. They're adding things to it. Uh, things that are borrowed from the old covenant rather than to be regulated by Christ the Spirit through the new covenant. One way to think about this simplicity of worship is what I call portability. There's not a thing that God requires us to do in worship that we cannot take with us. A Bible, a flask of water, and some bread and wine. That's it. Do it on the battlefield. You can do it in the far reaches of, of Africa, wherever God has gathered his people. Simple worship is portable worship. That's one of the reasons, amongst many, why we would uh, contend for uh, pouring or sprinkling as the mode of baptism, because of its simplicity. New covenant worship is simple. And then, new covenant worship is to be reverent. We talked about coming to God as Father. But notice as we read that in the Catechism, it's with reverence and fear and awe. We're still the holy God in whose presence we come. And we then are to approach him with fear and reverence and love according to his holy name. So much of worship today is full of the world and humor and, and jollity and, and irreverence. There's a strange combination in Psalm 2 that we are to rejoice with trembling. 
Both these things need to mark our own attitudes and our assembly. And the Lord's table. It's not just a time of mourning. It is mourning. But it's also a festival. It's a time of great rejoicing. We want to see these two responses combined. Reverence with joy. Joy with reverence. But reverence must be there. Now a word of encouragement to you. If we are to come into the presence of a holy God with reverence. That should affect our posture and behavior and our dress. I see these churches where people bring their lattes into church. Is that reverent? Our, our dress needs to reflect this. It's that we need to have our best for God. Our best is what is to be worn when we come into his presence. Because we're coming into the presence. Not just a great king, but the greatest king. And so to worship God in spirit is to worship the triune God. Triune God um, with great uh, heart affection and simplicity and reverence. And then we're to come in truth. And Christ is the truth. You see, in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He is the, he's the fulfillment of it all. So he is the truth. But as the truth, he's the one who revealed his will in the second commandment. There's no contradiction here. That we come in the truth, who reveal the truth of how he would be worshipped. The truth repeated here in Deuteronomy chapter 12. That we are to do what he's told us to do. And not add to or take away from his word. And so the regular principle continues. Yes, there is a change. And we note that change. But the fact that God is a holy God. We must worship him in the spirit according to the truth of the Savior. Who is himself truth. This brings us then to uh, the necessity. Just two things here that Jesus says. Why this is so important. Verses 23 and 24. An hour is coming now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is a spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Two things. In the first place, this is what God is seeking. This is the heart of the triune God. The triune God has saved you, as I've told you before, not to keep you from going to hell. He saved you to have another one to add to the family who worships him. That's what he's seeking. That's what the gospel's all about. That's what missions is all about. That's why it must always be connected to the church, not the parachurch. Because all evangelism is to bring people into the church as part of the worshiping people of God. And then, the nature of God. God is a spirit. Oh, that simple phrase says so much about him. He's not just a spirit. He's the uncreated absolute spirit. The creator of all other spirits. And as such, he's infinite and holy. Now, how in the world can you imagine that you could select worship to worship an infinite God? No, you must worship him in spirit and in truth. And then he's a holy God and you're sinful. He must tell you then what is going to be pleasing to him. And so it's God's will that we worship him in this way. And so because, because God is this infinite spirit, we must worship him uh, through the Son by the Holy Spirit. So once again, this is why we do what we do, both in terms of the elements, but also as we speak about reverence, is why we're trying to have us hear 
ready to meditate a few minutes before the hour that we might have our hearts prepared while we would encourage you at home before you come here to have meditated and prepare yourself to come into his presence because we're coming to the presence of a great king the glorious triune holy God who is exalted on high but I want you to note as well the close relationship between your daily sacrifice of living and what we're doing here. Because if you're neglecting to seek God with all your being in the pursuit of holiness, if you're not Monday through Saturday offering Him the sacrifice of your life, giving yourself as burnt offerings to Him, pouring yourself out for Him, there's no way that you can come here on the Lord's Day and worship Him. You cannot disconnect them, dear friends. And so I urge you, pursue holiness with all of your being in Christ Jesus. And then, in Christ Jesus, come on the Lord's Day and enter the courts of our God. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.